Good afternoon, werewolves. Um, welcome once again to the Metaphysical Fitness Podcast. Um, I want to continually thank uh, Talim Knox for all the work that he's doing and uh, just all the the passion that he has, and um, you know, just want him to keep making more good content and 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 just uh, I want to be uh, thank him very much for again this opportunity just to to come on here and just share thoughts and ideas and maybe to. Uh, I don't know, help to enlighten and open people's minds and, and help them to, to think about the world a little bit differently. Um, I've been doing that a lot lately this week. Um, this coming Friday, I'll, I'll be celebrating my 37th trip around the sun. <laughs> it means I'll turn 37 years old. And, uh, you know, you're kind of getting closer to that, uh, over the hill moment of, you know, 40 years old, uh, and it's made me really take a step back and, and think a lot about life lately. Um, see, one of the, the tenets, the very first tenet of Buddhism is the mantra of life is suffering. Three words. And that, that doesn't sound very optimistic. Uh, a lot of people think I'm a very optimistic person, and, and I try to be in, in most regards. And that doesn't sound very nice at all just to to say life is suffering that, that sounds very pessimistic uh very um disheartening but i i was kind of reading one of i was reading one of the uh the, the story of, of the original buddha uh, gautama i think is how you pronounce his name and uh he was the original buddha now first off for buddhists they, they don't worship buddha that's something to kind of get out of the way it's not a deity in which you worship uh, being a buddha just means that you're an awakened one. You don't try to worship Buddha. You try to become a Buddha. You, you become awake, woke, you know, get woke. You've heard that statement. Uh, it's sort of the same thing as, as being born again. I think that's, that's, uh, every religious group has some type of, of awakening, uh, idea. Um, and sometimes with those awakening ideas, it may be doing, uh, in some cultures, doing something, dangerous as in uh, i believe some of the aboriginal tribes in new zealand will tie vines around their ankles and jump off of a platform and try to get as close to the ground as possible that's where bungee jumping came from uh, and the thought is that you know if you face death and overcome it that you'll be awakened to your new life uh, or the ayahuasca tribes in south america they'll drink ayahuasca which uh, has the active ingredient of uh, dimethyltryptamine which is the same chemical that floods your brain when you're having a near-death experience or uh, a state of lucid dreaming. And so the thought is that you, you drink this and you go on like a two-hour journey and you get to see what life looks like if you were in the throes of death. Uh, something similar in, I believe it's in Cambodia, they have a, a root of a tree called uh, Iboga that does something similar to ayahuasca. But these, uh, this trip can last for anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. Um, and, and both of those are met with a lot of vomiting and diarrhea and you just be sick as a dog. It's, it's not a fun recreational thing, which I've even, you know, theorized with uh, baptism. Maybe that was kind of the first early idea of instead of just being dunked in water and you have everybody standing around and cheering that uh, originally people were dunked underwater and held to the point of almost drowning. And with that, you get the, the flood of dimethyltryptamine naturally through your own brain and lets you see what 
life would be like if you were to pass at this very moment. But anyways, I kind of digress. Uh, I was reading the original story of Buddha, Gautama Buddha. He was very wealthy. He was a wealthy prince. His father tried to take care of him and shield him from all the evils of this world. He was kind of kept behind the wall of the castle and distracted with all the, you know, nice pleasures of, of this world. And uh, he had actually ventured out one day and, um, you know, he had his attendant with him and uh, he saw this this old crippled man just with palsy and shaking. And he asked his attendant, he said, what is that creature? And uh, his attendant did basically said, hey, this is, this is a guy. Um, this, it's a man. He's just like other men. He was born an infant. He became a child, a youth, a husband, a father, a father of fathers. And he's just become old and he's subject to destruction of, of his beauty and his will and all the possibilities of life. And Buddha was Gautama. He was kind of shaken by this. He said, you mean like other men? You, you mean, does that mean it'll happen to me? And his attendant said, inevitably, it will with the passage of time. Basically, this just broke Gautama's heart. It just completely just shattered his walls of safety and he didn't know what to do. And uh, he, he was sick over this. And he went back to the to his, his home and he, he sat there and, and compl- con- contemplated this for a long time and just went through a pity party. Well, then he, when he got his courage uh, back up, he went back outside the walls again, and he saw a man that was that was sick, that was uh, that was ill. They, they don't say what kind of ailment he had, but he was shaking and he was just horribly afflicted. And I mean, he was just a, he was. The text says that he was unbearable to behold. Uh, he was just a pity and of, of contempt. And and Gautama asked his attendant, said, well, "What's that? What's he?" And the attendant said, "That's a man like other men who was born whole, but." who became ill and sick and unable to cope. He's a burden to himself and to others, suffering and incurable. Gautama was kind of shocked by this too. And he says, men like other other people, could this happen to me? And his attendant said, well, no man's exempt from the ravages of disease. So Gautama went back to his home and uh, he tried to distract himself with the delights of his previous life. But it was just, it just sickened him. Nothing, nothing gave him pleasure anymore. He kind of went through a sense of, of the way Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, that everything was just meaningless at that point. And so he ventured out one more time and, uh, he, he saw a, a funeral procession coming through the streets and he saw this body that was just laying there with an open coffin, just laying there still. And it just, it, it put fear inside of him. And, Gautama was surrounded by grief and sorrow and, and saw all the others crying and he was just completely lost. And he asked his attendant, he said, what is that? And his attendant said, that's a man like other men, born of a woman, beloved and hated, who once was like you and now is the earth. Gautama was shocked. He said, it's like other men like me. This could happen to me. And his attendant said, this is your end. It's the end of all men. And this completely rocked Gautama's world. Uh, his, his father tried to, you know, cheer him up. He brought in a festival of women, and, you know, to try to occupy him, to distract him. And it was just as, as if all the beauty in the world had just left him at that time. And, and 
that's when he, he had left his riches and he had went out and he'd uh, tried to find deeper meaningless or meaning in this meaningless world. I think that's something that I believe it was Leo Tolstoy had actually written about as well. Um, I don't have the verbatim text in front of me, but remember he, he had dealt with this issue too. He, and he'd only found actually four ideas that he had for coping with the, the tragedy of life. He said he looked at some people and they just try to remain ignorant of it and distract themselves. Um, well, remaining ignorance one and distracting yourselves another. Um, Others just get so disheartened that they end their lives or, or others just remain and, and just suffer and, and just live a life of misery. And I realize this is something that we actually all do. Uh, we don't want to say that life is tragic and life is suffering. We want to pretend that it's not. You know, I, I was thinking about this actually yesterday before uh, going to football practice. Uh, I rarely go back to my hometown of Maryville. Decided to go and, and stop by uh, uh, my dad's mausoleum. I, I ha haven't been there in, in, it's been almost four years since he passed it. I, I have not been to his mausoleum uh, since his passing. Uh, and I was, I was talking with my wife about this and I said, you know, it's, it's weird that we have this, this very unnatural thought and idea about death. You know, that's, that's one of, that's the great ultimate tragedy that, that faces us all. And we do, we try to live our lives ignorant of it, but actually we try to live our lives running from it and hiding from it. You know, that's why you build houses and you put locks on your doors. That's why it takes so long to go through TSA with all the screening process because we're afraid something will happen when, when we're in the air. We want to preserve our lives as long as possible. That's why we spend billions of dollars on healthcare and making new drugs and new treatments and exercising and dieting and everything else because we're trying to outrun death and we're ignoring it that it's there. And the only time that we ever stop to take pause about it is when someone close to us passes. Because you see about you know death all the time when you look on TV or read the newspaper. I mean, we, we know that it's there, but it only hits home whenever it comes to someone that's close to us. And then we realize that no one's exempt from this. No one and no thing. All creatures will pass. All people will pass. Even our own sun will burn out. Plants, trees, bacteria, fungus, everything is subject to this demise. And it scares the hell out of us. And I think that's where we're different from all the other creatures on this planet is that we can actually sit and contemplate our life and the fact that one day it'll all come to a crashing end. And what scares us is because we don't know what lies on the other side. It's the fate that remains for everyone, but it's we don't know what waits on the other side. Is it going to be punishment for all the things that we did wrong and suffering? Because life is suffering and, and we don't want to suffer more than we already have and we can't imagine an eternity of suffering. We want to hope that it's all bliss and, and, and imagine what, what could be better than this. All the good time, this, good times that you've had rolled into one for eternity. But a lot of us are fearful that it'll be an eternity of nothingness. I mean, even when we die, we, we try to, we embalm those that we love to preserve their bodies, to keep their bodies from decay, from taking place in the natural chain of things, of breaking down you know, getting broken down by 
fungus and bacteria and remo- returning to the earth to replenish and, and feed, you know, the plants and trees, which will feed the animals and people and, and all the cells of your body can return back into nature and, and, uh, return to the cycle of things, but we try to, to fight that off as long as possible. It's kind of even tragic in the sense of, you know, if you have a, a pet like a dog that gets sick and it can't walk and it can't eat and it's, it, it is, has no, uh, nothing but just pain and suffering in its life. You know, usually we say the, the humane thing is just to, to call a vet and have them put to sleep. But with ourselves, we try to preserve as long as possible and hang on as long as possible. And uh, even though we lay there crippled in, in a bed uh, with bed sores and a feeding tube and a, something to breathe for us and to make our heart beat for us, just to try to, to inch just a little bit closer, to hang on just a little bit longer because we are terrified of this one thought that Life is suffering, and we don't want it to be even more suffering afterwards. I know that's kind of dark. But I was also kind of thinking about, uh, I've been, uh, I saw on the Discovery Channel, uh, looking at different religions of the world, and I was fascinated by one of the most extreme versions of Catholicism down in, in Mexico where you have these practitioners that will whip themselves bloody. Some of them will actually nail themselves to a cross, feeling great great amounts of pain. And, And at first, when you look on the outside, you think, that is odd. Why are they doing that? And that returns to my original point. The first tenet of Buddhism is because life is suffering. And when you're suffering, when you're in great amounts of pain, that's when life and reality becomes the most extreme, real moment in time for you. There is little doubt of where you're at when you're standing on the tip of a spear. You can't imagine you're somewhere else. You can't think about the past. You can't think about the future. All you can concentrate on is that pain in that very moment right there. That's what mindfulness is all about. Meditation, you know, you hear that word mindfulness. Well, that means that you're, you're focusing on your breathing and focusing on where you're at and keeping your mind in the moment. Not thinking about the past, not worrying about the future. Thinking about where you are in that very moment. And that's the same thing with yoga. See, yoga has kind of like this mystic idea to it. But the thing is, is when you're in a stretch or a pose, you've, you've got discomfort, all this stretching and burning of your muscles and all you can think of is, is breathing and holding that pose and digging deeper and, and just suffering through that stretch just a little bit longer for the next pose. And then you get to relax for a second and then you go into another pose. And so you're bringing yourself out of the moment and then back into the moment of suffering. And so what do you do about that? Life is tragic. Life is suffering. And I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but that's the fact. I've, I've, I've thought about that often. That's why I like running ultra marathons. You know, when you're out there running for, you know, a 50K or a 100K, you're out there for, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours. I did a 100K in Hell, Michigan. And that was a good place for it because for 12 hours I was running and I felt like I was in hell. 
even even shit my pants and you know got was all, all chafed and everything else it was horrible it was suffering but there was little doubt where I was at I knew exactly where I was at because you couldn't take your mind away from it and you just had to focus and just keep going and, and there was little doubt of where you were at that moment in time but that's the thing you have this dragon that's constantly chasing you that's that's there that's eating at you day and night and you can ignore that it's there or you can run from it and you can hide from it but it's always there it's waiting to gobble you up whether it's in the form of disease or the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or whatever some type of uncertainty that, that comes about and so what do you do about it well you can't run from it forever because it'll catch you and it'll devour you and the more that you run from it the stronger it gets and the scarier that it gets and so all that you can really do is face it and deal with it. Try to have peace about it. And I think that's why we're all so neurotic and so uh, unhappy and depressed is because we have uh, all of this chaos and uncertainty around us and, and all of this, this fear and anxiety and depression because we, we just don't know what to do. We're suffering. Life is suffering and we don't want to admit it. But it's necessary. It's completely necessary. Because without the suffering of life, life would become meaningless. Without suffering, we would atrophy in all regards, our mental capacity, our spirituality, our physical bodies. If your physical body does nothing, your muscles atrophy, right? And they become weak. But when they're met with resistance and you push against that resistance, they get stronger, they get faster, they become better. Same thing mentally. If you just sit there and let your brain turn to mush and you don't do anything, well, your mind becomes weak. And so if you start doing the things that you don't want to do, like reading, doing math, learning another language, pushing your brain to, to learn, you can grow in that regard. Spirituality, if you ignore it, it can become atrophy and cold and, and non-existent in your life and you could feel this sense of emptiness. But that's why resistance is there. That's why the suffering is there, so you'll push against it. You know, in, in every single story that's ever existed, every single story, fact, fiction, myth, uh, there's always this... this um, sense of there is this, this chaotic monster that some great difficulty or tragedy that, that faces whatever the hero is in the story. And at some point in time, they have to turn and face it, whether it's the Avengers facing, you know, Thanos or, you know, if it's uh, the, the Hobbit when they're actually really facing a dragon. That dragon has some great treasure that uh, they get. Once it's defeated, but the, the, the dragon could destroy them. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying to face it. It's terrifying to face whatever monster it, it, it's coming at you. Whether it's the, the, the fear of starting a new job or a new career, uh, diving into an education to try to get a degree, uh, asking that person out that you've wanted to ask out, you know, getting married, uh, having a child, it's, it's all terrifying. Uh, 
but you're supposed to, to face it. And if you face it and defeat it, then you have something great to take back with you. And that's the whole point. As you journey into chaos, you face life's tragedy, and you come out on the other side with something great to bring back from it. Now, I might kind of be changing subjects a little bit, but it's in the same idea of the idea of death. That subject doesn't bother me as much anymore. It used to. I used to obsess about it. Because, you know, the hard part is I I realize, you know, when somebody that you rely on and that you love and that's part of, of your core group, your tribe that you care about, and you have a relationship with, and all of a sudden they're not there anymore. That's what's hard. It's like you have uh, one less person uh, to rely on, like, less help, less um, it's thundering outside too. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and that's what makes it hard, makes it difficult. Because we need each other. And when you have somebody that you need and they're not there, especially when you have times when you really need them, that makes it hard. But as far as what happens when you die, well, it's not going to be a forever of nothingness. It can't be. You know, I try to think, well, what were you before you were born? You know, it's like all of a sudden just one day the lights come on and you come into being, but your body, they say that you don't really remember anything before the age of three. But you're obviously alive before the age of three. You're alive in your mother's womb. You had a heartbeat, brain waves, and you could move and everything else. And you come out into this world, you could cry, and you knew when you were hungry and thirsty, and but you just don't remember any of it. But like I've said before on previous uh, iterations of this podcast, is is that. Uh, Life is a series of awakenings and sleepings. I mean, we, we do this all the time. We go to sleep at night. You know, where does your mind go when you sleep? Uh, it goes somewhere. It's doing something. Uh, we just don't know what. We don't understand. And then we come into the waking world and we exist. And, you know, what we exist by is, is a lot of electrical impulses moving through, you know, our five senses that have been developed to feel through the world. You know, you can... Uh, you know, you, you feel electricity through your bodies that tells your nerve endings if something's soft or smooth or hard or soft. Electrical impulses go through your nose to tell you if it's a citrusy smell, if it's sweet, if it's, if it's gross. Uh, your sense of taste, your, your eyesight, it's, you know, electromagnetic waves that move in the, the very specific frequency of, of visible light that comes through your rods, cones, and retina and then tells your brain exactly what you're seeing. Or vibrations that that move through your tympanic nerve and tell you what you're hearing. Well, that's your brain interpreting the world around you. And so maybe there's a different world when you're asleep. And maybe life is fractal of, of sleeping and waking. And maybe it's the same thing with living and dying. It's just a cycle that you die and then it's another life. And then you die and there's just a period back and forth. But I don't think it's nothingness forever. And I don't think you're going to be tortured forever for what you did and what you didn't do. But anyways, that's my thought for the for the day. I'd like to dive more into that subject later, but you know, I like to keep my 
podcasts around 20 minutes. But anyways, thanks again, Talon Knox. Uh, I hope to uh, speak with you guys again. Uh, uh, thank you for listening. And I don't know, you guys have a great day.